Welcome back to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast, where we explore what God is doing in Canadian cities. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, and my guest today is Corey Castera. He's the pastor of Bradford Community Church, and he's making great inroads into his small city. Uh, Bradford is a bedroom community north of Toronto, and uh, when I went online to research it, it described it as the primary country urban area of Bradford, West Gwillimbury, Ontario. This small city overlooks a farming community known as the Holland Marsh, located on the Holland River that flows into Lake Simcoe. We've never featured a country urban area on the podcast, but apparently that's a thing. Uh, there's a couple reasons I wanted to have Corey on today. In his previous occupation, he was part of the Ontario Provincial Police Traffic Support Unit that would clean up after highway accidents. Both uh, superhighways 400 and 404 are major multi-lane arteries flowing in and out of the greater Toronto area and often dealing with injuries and fatalities along their routes. Unfortunately, uh, Corey suffers from PTSD and has a story that will help us understand what many in police, CMS, uh, healthcare, and other professions are facing. So we do want to talk about that, but we also want to hear about some of the open doors in community uh, since Corey entered pastoral ministry. Um, so Corey, uh, welcome and uh, good, to, good to have you on board. Um, before we get into talking about anything too heavy or too spiritual, uh, why don't we just talk about you a little bit? Where'd you grow up? Uh, tell us about your important relationships and some of your passions in life. Well, I grew up in the city of Toronto and grew up uh, going to Evangel Temple, and not the Evangel Temple at the 401 and Young Street. I was actually in the building when it was down uh, at Bond and Dundas by the Eaton Center. So, wow. Yeah, way, way, way back. Uh, and then, obviously, when uh, when the church moved up to Young and 401, uh, I was there as well. So I grew up in the church and was there until I turned about 22 and got hired by the OPP. Uh, so I've got that and then I grew up obviously in church and I gave my heart to Jesus when I was four years old with my mom and I haven't wandered away from that I've made some mistakes along the way like everybody else has so uh, I'm not not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but uh, Jesus has always been part of my life right from when I was uh, when I was born and uh, I have coached hockey for 21 years, uh, eight years down in Toronto and the rest of it up here in Barrie. Uh, I have been married for 27 years uh, to my wife, Heidi, I'm totally married out of my league. Uh, <laughs> she's, she's amazing. She's a rock star and uh, makes me look good. We have two children. They are 19. So a girl and a boy. Yes, they are twins. Uh, they're doing great. Uh, my son's going off into the military and my daughter is doing arts. She is a brilliant artist and I have trouble drawing stick figures. So she definitely didn't get it from me. So uh, they're great. And we have three dogs and I think we're at two birds. I'm not sure they keep showing up in the house. My daughter's a bit of an animal lover. And yeah, I don't know if we have a fish or not, or I don't even know. My I'm scared to go in my daughter's room to be honest with you. <laughs> well, when when I look on screen, I I, I see Lily, uh, your therapy dog, with her vest uh, back there on the couch, and so uh, you'll have to tell us a little bit about about Lily later. But um, let's um, let's just kind of jump into uh, you know your your career with the uh, OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, and uh, what what work uh, you were doing with them and uh, just kind of give us an insight into the nature of, of that work. Um, I was, well, 20 year, 28 years with the OPP uh, and still employed. Um, the last kind of uh, working days in my career was a major collision investigator uh, in the GTA. So 
everything from Fort Erie, almost out to Coburg, out to Kitchener, all the way up to Barrie, Brecon, uh, a huge, huge area. And uh, my main role is as a commercial vehicle uh, inspector. I inspected uh, commercial vehicles uh, at an enforcement level, but primarily my responsibilities were more for the collision investigation. Uh, and I was a major spill cleanup. Uh, guy so and so would most of most of your work happen uh after there was an accident or were you also preemptive in looking for uh violations it was both uh but my main responsibility was the major collision investigation and then when i wasn't doing that and i had time then i would go out and do enforcement but a lot of times the enforcement was uh would help so you could see the newest equipment that was out there before you saw it uh, in a collision investigation. Uh, and so it was a lot of learning and a lot of keeping up to date with uh, what was out mm -hmm. there. And obviously with the spill cleanup, that can be very dangerous work if you don't keep up to speed on those things too. So there was a lot of training right. for sure. So uh, when a, a major collision would happen and you were called out, were you usually there after uh, EMS, before, same time? Like, what was there any kind of predictability to it? No, no predictability. Um, <laughs> kind of one of those funny things, you know, we kind of joke around, always let the ambulance get there first. But um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there really wasn't. It really depended where, where it happened and where we were when it happened. So, mm -hmm. uh, and then the team was kind of scattered all over the, the region. So, you know, depending on where everybody was and happened, someone would show up, someone would show up a half an hour later and, you know, you'd kind of get there as soon as you could. Yeah. And uh, I, I imagine uh, that uh, there were times that that job was uh, uh, overwhelming. Uh, how, do, how, do, how do people prepare uh, if they're a first responder? Um, how do you... Um, you know, go and, and deal with the horrors of, of accidents? That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, seems to be a, a work in progress as to learning how to do that. Um, I was really good at what I did and I love my job. Uh, but after 18 years, it just was a cumulative thing. It just got to be way too much. And, you know, obviously there's some things that stuck out in my mind, stick out in my mind a lot more than others. Uh, you know, but it was just, uh, it was a lot. And um, I, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure exactly how to prepare for it. Um, you know, hindsight's 2020. If I could do things differently, I would probably do some things different, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's the job in itself is really difficult to even prepare for because you just, everything's an unknown and there's no, uh, different things are happening all the time. So it's, you know, you can kind of get taught a lot of things, but you really kind of learning as you go too. I did the best I could. And uh, obviously it caught up to me after a while. It was a long time and it was a yeah. lot. So, so talk about when uh, the discovery of uh, PTSD, uh, there's, it comes a point where um, you actually have a diagnosis and something was going on that all of a sudden you realized, uh, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not well. I'm not functioning the way I should be. How how did that happen? Was that a, a gradual thing? Was there a particular straw that broke the camel's back? Uh, you know, what happened? I, I, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, looking back. Um, you know, there is, was a gradual sort of buildup to it. Um, and, you know, now looking back, I could see that I could see it clearly, but at the time I really didn't know. Um, I wasn't sleeping at night. Uh, I was very short fused. Um, my family, <laughs> my family put up with a lot and, uh, you know, it just, I started changing and having trouble coping and, uh, just eventually got to a place where I just couldn't handle it anymore. So um, this, this gradual onset uh, that you're able to see in retrospect, um, but before retrospect, when you were starting to deal with this unraveling 
um, within yourself. Uh, can you kind of describe, you know, what, what it was like to, um, to live inside your skin? It was, it was really, uh, it was really tough and it was tough to live around my skin as, uh, as my family would tell you. Um, I wasn't sleeping at night. I was waking up uh, with horrible nightmares, gasping for air, um, having trouble breathing at night and uh, just completely anxious. Uh, and it, it's kind of, you get to uh, what PTSD is, is uh, a kind of a constant state of hypervigilance. Uh, to make it really, really simple, because uh, I'm not a doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but to kind of make it really simple, you have the executive processing part of your brain that can balance a checkbook and you can kind of uh, weigh consequences and cause and effect and, you know, uh, that kind of thing. You can make a five-year plan for your life or whatever. Then you've got the amygdala part of your brain, which is the fight, flight, or freeze part of your brain and not able to really think things through very well. It's all very quick, rapid responses. Um, and uh, when you're in a traumatic situation or a scenario, that is what kicks in as your amygdala comes in, that fight, flight, or freeze part. And uh, the executive part of your brain stops functioning. It doesn't work at that time. Once, you, once the, the trauma is dealt with and gone away, uh, then that part of your brain shuts down and you go back to being a normal person um, and be able to think through things. When that amygdala gets triggered too many times, it's different for everybody. And it may be once, it may be a thousand times. It really just depends uh, on, on whatever that depends on. Uh, eventually it doesn't shut off or it doesn't shut off easily. So if you can imagine that you are constantly looking around um, looking for danger, um, expecting bad things to happen. Uh, you know, it, it's completely and totally exhausting and functioning, uh, everyday life just doesn't happen. And, uh, it, everything's a challenge. You can't, can't think you can't, uh, give me a multiple syllable word and, <laughs> you know, I, I'd have to look it up multiple times or if yeah. you give me three tasks to do, I could do, I could remember to do one, but then I'd have to be able to read the next two. Cause it just, it's just not there. It's quick, quick, rapid, uh, decisions that you make and, and it's exhausting. So it's a constant state of hypervigilance. So it affects everything that you do. Hmm. Uh, are you able to talk about how, uh, the, the, the line of work you were in, uh, were, were you experiencing PTSD in the midst of a, a work day? Uh, or was it more um, just after the, you came, came out of an event that uh, you couldn't shut off and, and, and all of these triggers were happening? What, what was going on? Um, I know that every time I had two phones, so one phone was the, uh, we call it, I call it the bat phone, but the emergency phone. And then one was my personal one. And anytime that the emergency phone went off, um, like my heart would start racing and, uh, it was, I, I got to a place where I hated hearing that phone go off because it was, it was bad uh, pretty much almost every time it went off, you know, every once in a while it was somebody from the office calling, but for, yeah. you know, let's meet up for a coffee or something but uh there was always that potential that when that went off um it was going to be a it was going to be bad so i used to enjoy it when the phone went off it was fun uh, i loved being in the middle of chaos i loved being in the center of uh of chaos and i uh, i believe that i handled myself well and i thrived in that environment but uh could only take it to take it for a certain amount of time to a certain point and then i stopped functioning well in that environment mm -hmm. i see a, a golden doodle named lily back on your couch yes and uh so tell us about therapy animals and uh, uh and 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 just other uh ways that that you had to uh adapt and and learn uh to uh process with with uh ptsd well 
Lily, there's actually, uh, you know, a couple kinds, a, a few different types of service animals or service dogs. She is not, she is actually not a therapy dog. A therapy would be uh, like a St. John's ambulance kind of dog that goes into, um, you know, seniors homes, hospitals, kids, okay. or to sort of comfort them. Uh, Lily is actually a certified uh, medical service dog uh, to the highest standards in Canada, uh, which are out of British Columbia. And so she is actually a medical service dog. And she is, uh, she's with me most of the time. Uh, and her, uh, uh, when she's out and she's working with me, she is able to tell when things are going badly for me. Uh, and she will start her talking routine and she'll run through my legs and get my attention until I get on my knees and, um, you know, focus on, on her and, and come back to where I'm at. Uh, she also, believe it or not, one of the things she does is she licks my bald head and that, uh, that helps bring me down and bring me around. And, um, you haven't been able to get Heidi to, to do that. eh? No, 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 no. Um, and (laughs) I shouldn't say not for lack of trying, but no, no, she doesn't. It's, it's actually when Lily and her furry mummy is a 90 pound Doberman, the two of them actually go at it at the same time and and a layer of skin every once in a while, but you're getting um, deep therapy there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lily will, uh, Lily, uh, she actually pulled me out of a Walmart one day, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, she dragged me out and, uh, I was stuck in an aisle and I couldn't move and I got down on my knees and I was having trouble breathing. And anyways, I, uh, she stayed with me. And then when I could stand up, I grabbed onto the cart and she pulled me and I steered the cart to a bench at the exit and wow. I was able to sit down there and someone had to come get me. So yeah, I'm amazed at, uh, how, how, God has given us these creations that uh, that are able to uh, to help us. A uh, couple uh, guests ago, I was talking with uh, Kelly Franklin, and a big part of uh, her life has been uh, uh, therapy with horses. And oh yes! Oh, you, oh, you too! Oh yes! I have done equine assisted learning. I love I'll ta- it. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Oh my goodness. Oh, I have a horsey friend named China. Mm-hmm. And uh, the interesting thing about horses kind of on the, on the food chain, there's uh, grass and then there's horses yep. and their most important thing in their life is safety. Mm. So uh, they are constantly in a state of hypervigilance, uh, the fight, flight or freeze mode. And that's why you see yep. them ears or you know turning and looking around and yeah and uh, they're always paying attention to their environment uh in in a group of horses they'll be kind of the lead horse and then the other ones feel safer with that lead horse and uh, somebody's watching and and the other is watching yeah. yeah and so you can let the guard down a little bit yeah yeah well with um if you can take an individual struggling with hypervigilance and put them with an animal uh that uh, is hypervigilant naturally uh, if you're not, if you don't calm down, if you don't slow your heart down, if you don't settle yourself, um, they will have nothing to do with you. But China and I, I brush her, I take her for walks. I do equine assisted learning in a group environment. Uh, Lily comes with us. Sometimes we actually, the three of us run together, uh, in the arena and, um, she is, uh, she settles me down. I settle her down. And, um, there's just those, some of those, some of those days where it's just, you know, I get her right in the right, uh, spot and scrub behind her ears, scratch behind her ears. And she starts closing her eyes and her head goes down and I start calming down. And it's probably some of the most peaceful, relaxing, um, therapeutic, uh, time that, that I have. And yeah, yeah. yeah, the group stuff is fantastic. Uh, the owner of the barn at Karuka Equestrian, she lets me go and visit China um, uh, frequently. And oh, she's been, she's been amazing. I love mm. her. Let's talk a little bit about the, the support. Once, once you realized that, uh, and, and your family certainly was helping you to realize 
that uh, something was going on inside you that was off. And uh, did how long, how did you come to this diagnosis that it was PTSD? How, how did you look for help? Uh, what was the, the journey to, to being able to actually start healing? It sucked. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have to, I really have to be careful how I answer that question because I, I, you know, as, as a Christian, we need to forgive and we need to sort of, I mean, that's a key part of what we, what we believe in. Yeah. Uh, it's been a really, str- a real struggle. Uh, I asked for help uh, from my employer and really help was nowhere to be found and they treated me like garbage. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, like, there was really nothing there. The association or association bought me two breakfasts and they really supplied no assistance at all. Um, WSIB ignored me. Um, I would call them. I had an active claim rolling and I had um, uh, eventually got diagnosed. They, uh, they didn't even find a psychologist for me. I had to go find one. Hmm. And um, I would call my caseworker and it would take uh, upwards of usually a month, a month and a half. If I left a message saying I'm really in trouble, I need help. Uh, it would take about a month, a month and a half for them to call me back. Wow. And so there was little to no support there um, available. Uh, and you can imagine um, I've been uh, pastoring for probably close to 20 years now. Um, and I don't, um, I'm a tent maker, so I don't take anything for doing it. I just do it because I believe that that's just, a, it's just for me. That's fantastic. So I, um, imagine, imagine being a pastor with a service dog, you kind of, you know, that can be problematic too. So, uh, it, it's, um, it's been tough to be honest with you. Uh, some of the, some of the the best supports and the ones that have worked the best have been uh, not provided uh, by my employer, not provided by uh, workers work WSIB. Uh, they've all been charities that have been able to step in and, and provide assistance. It's, it's been really, really crappy. I haven't seen my psychologist or my social worker face to face for a, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some zoom things but you know like that's got some limitations so yeah yeah it's been really a really crappy journey yeah and and it's it's a journey that's ongoing right oh yeah yeah so um when and and i and i i respect uh you know your position as uh as a police officer and and uh understand that uh you know, um, in a frontline profession like that, there, there's a, a certain sense of, uh, well, some people refer to it as the blue shield. You know, there's this, this code that uh, police officers live by, you know, that sometimes it, it, you're, you're stoic, you have to be somewhat detached emotionally to do, to do the work. Uh, there, there's a, um, uh, very much of, uh, a training and an orientation, uh, and a professionalism that goes along. Uh, but sometimes, uh, like, like your experience, the there's, it's, it's harder to get the support and the help within the organization. Um, it's non-existent. Yeah. So uh, we, you, know, you get told, uh, you know, it's okay to have a bad day. Just ask for help and we'll be there. And the moment that you ask for help, it's career suicide, honestly. I mean, that's the bottom yeah. line. It's unfortunate that it is that way, but it's terrible. Unreal. If, yeah. if, like if, if I had, if I had treated, like if I had responded to the calls that, that I went to by just ignoring them, I'd be charged under the police services act for neglect of duty. 
Hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like all these years and then all and all of a sudden you're in the garbage can and, you know i've got some really good friends that have kept in touch mm-hmm. um and have been good uh but a lot of them haven't heard from them at all mm-hmm. um and sometimes the ones that you don't expect are the ones that call and reach out and have been really good so yeah. it, it's a bit of a I, I i i just i don't i don't get it yeah you know? Do you feel that uh, with what you've gone through, what you've uh, suffered, that it has given you insights into the nature of police life? Not policing, that's the work, but police life, being an officer, uh, living with with a particular code, um, you know, certain, certainly that lack of support is, is daunting and, 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 and you really are struggling with that. I, I get that. And at the same time, um, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of positives about policing that, that you would have experienced too. Um, there, there would have been, you know, just that sense of, you know, serving the community and stepping into uh, to, to situations that nobody else can step into. So um, when you think about other officers that you know and what they face on a day-to-day basis, um, I'd, I'd be curious to hear some of your insights. I absolutely loved my job. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Uh, I got paid to ride a motorcycle. It was great. That's a good were, gig. <laughs> oh, this is a good gig. Uh, one day I got play. I got paid to drive Argos uh, around um, a river and over top of furniture and all kinds of stuff. I uh, got to ride in a, a go train locomotive. Um, uh, travel to Chicago, Texas, uh, Atlanta, um, uh, so much stuff that was fun. And got, I actually, one day I got paid to jackknife tractor trailers. Uh, what? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was so much fun. Uh, a lot of days uh, I probably would have just done it for free or maybe even paid to go do some of that stuff. But uh, anyways, it was really good. I had, a, I had a great, I had a great, uh, a great career. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I got injured, obviously, and um, uh, really, I mean, the bottom line is that the support really wasn't there uh, as, as expected. So that really kind of hurt and still does and still working through that. So, so people that are listening or watching the podcast uh, will, um, many of them will, will know people who are in policing or uh, emergency services, uh, you know, soldiers, that kind of thing. And, and um, having, having lived on uh, that side of the blue shield, um, how would you, uh, how would you encourage people to uh, make a difference in the lives of people that work the front lines? What, what, what's really helpful? Um, you know, just being understanding and caring um, and like, I don't know, like it, strangely enough, uh, this is coming up on four years for me that uh, of this PTSD journey, uh, as far as diagnosis goes and treatment goes, uh, you know, nobody has asked me, how can I help you? Wow. Well, like, even after I suggested it, how about like, how can I help you? And uh, nobody's asked that. Like it's crazy. And then, and then the ones that say, "How can we help you?" And you tell them, and okay, I'll get, that. I'll get on that. I'll get back to you. And then they, you don't hear from them again. Right. You know, uh, really is is you know how can I help you? And what what do you need? Or, or how can I support you? And uh, you know, the Christian cliches don't work. Right. Uh, alcohol doesn't work. Not I, I've never been drunk in my life I don't drink uh, I don't do drugs at all so that's not really a, a stumbling block for me but um, 
Okay, I have, so I have a friend that won't even leave the house. The only time he leaves the house is to come and see me. Wow. He won't he won't leave. Okay, and, and, so I'm your neighbor and uh you know, we chat in the driveway from time to time. And uh I'm not really your neighbor, but hypothetically. So um I learn a little bit about what you do and uh you know, so Corey, how can I help you? We have the best neighbors. Uh, there, they have a little little daughter that comes and swims in our pool all the time, and uh, they're you know they'll bring little treats over for the dogs. Uh, they'll bring little treats over for us. And uh, <laughs> the the husband, when his daughter come over go for a swim, he'd start doing gardening work around the pool. Uh, in the wintertime, uh, when the snow is really, really heavy, uh, I have an ATV with a plow and he's got a tractor with a blower on it. And, you know, I'm getting ready to get geared up and come out. And the next thing I look out and, and there he is, he's blowing my driveway clear. Uh, they just really, uh, they really care and, and they take yeah. the time to just be good neighbors uh, and even their, their daughter, when Lily was going through her training, uh, she actually helped. I would tell her what she needed to do. And yeah. she was probably nine or 10 at the time. And, and she would take Lily out and, and work with her. So like, I just, you know, it's just being a good neighbor. That really helps. Absolutely. And, and when you're struggling, uh, in PTSD, um, are, are you able to, um, sense and know that kind of help is, are, is that something that in the midst of, um, you know, the, the hypervigilant state where, where you can't even comprehend the kindness or, or do you, do you sense it in the middle of it? You know what? I appreciate so much when someone just takes the time out to do something or think of something or, um, you know, it, it, it means a ton. Um, yeah. We have, we have a, a lady in our church who's, she likes doing artsy stuff. And so uh, I'm a Blue Bombers fan. And uh, so she made up these little hug cards because we weren't allowed to hug during COVID. So she made up these little cards like, like this big, you know, not, not that big. And it's got little arms on it with blue bombers written on the arms. And it says, when you need a hug, just open up the arms, wrap it around you and then put it back. So it'll be ready for the next time. Uh, like, okay. So, uh, it's not a hallmark, uh, but I would take that over hallmark any day. Uh, oh, for sure. You know, no offense to hallmark, but like yeah. the thought that went into that, um, just meant the world to me. So, uh, you know, it, the other thing that has been really, I've really appreciated was uh, people that fought for me mm. because I've had to fight for everything. Yeah. And Citadel uh, Canine Society, they're the ones that I worked with with Lily. Uh, if I run into any problems, uh, they fight for me. They, I don't have to do anything. They just, I call them and the next thing you know, they're on it. Uh, my psychologist is amazing when he finds out that uh, whether it's, you know, somewhere in the process, somebody is being abusive. Uh, he's like the big kid in the playground with the big stick. Like they did what? Leave it with me. Yeah. And those uh, even um, uh, I ended up getting diagnosed with, um, with sleep apnea too. And uh, I had to fight for all of that. And <laughs> Crazy thing was the area salesperson from ResMed, uh, she fought for me. Hmm. Like never met, never met this person before in my life. So when when somebody comes alongside of me and, and you ask, you know, what really, you know, kind of what really helps, you know, how can I help you is one thing. Uh, but you sit here and I, I put, you know, someone else puts the gloves on and fights for me mm -hmm. uh, when I can't a lot of times can't fight for myself. Uh, that is like gold. When, when you're on your game, when you're doing well, uh, is that part of your nature that you like to fight for others? Yeah. It's one of those. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those things. Yeah. Uh, even my career, I was a peer support, uh, peer support guy. So, um, and 
uh, I don't know. It's just uh, I'm not. It's not not I'm not any more special than anybody else. It just I'm wired that that way. I like to be involved with people and helping and supporting people. It just it it I feel better. I feel like yeah. I feel like it's it's part of of who I am. So if I'm not if I'm not involved in doing that, I feel broken. Yeah. Well, just uh, switching into set into. Uh, second gear here, or in, um, I don't know how many gears we got, but we're switching into second gear. And I want to talk about something you mentioned uh, that uh, you've been involved uh, as a pastor for uh, about 20 years, and uh, that that's something that is um, you're, you're co vocational, you uh, don't rely on uh, your uh, church work as a as your source of income, but you. No, it cost me money. <laughs> it cost me money to do it. Yeah. 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 No, no, it's a, it's a, yes. Some worry about how much they're going to get paid and, and you're, you're worried how much is this going to cost me? Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, I think, uh, you know, just a, um, an important uh, dynamic uh, that, and we need a lot more people like you that take that view of ministry that, I'll do what I need to do uh, to support myself, make a living. But uh, you know, my heart is is to do ministry. And so, talk a little bit about uh, how how that grew in you, and and uh, what that's looked like over twenty years, and what it looks like now. Well, uh, one day I was praying, and it was long, long time ago. And mm -hmm. God told me that I was going to be doing some preaching. I was going to be doing some traveling and I wasn't allowed to ask for anything. Wow. Yeah. And so I didn't, I told my, my best friend and Heidi, my wife, and didn't tell anybody else. No one. All of a sudden my phone started ringing. Uh, pastors that I knew in Michigan too, in particular, actually called me up and said, when are you coming to preach at our church? Wow. Like, oh, whenever you invite me, like I'll be there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, loaded up uh, whatever it was, a minivan at the time or whatever, and drove down there and uh, went down two separate weekends, actually a couple different churches. And then another guy uh, up in North Bay said, Hey, when are you going to come and preach at our church? whenever you ask. And so I was living in the Cookstown area and North Bay is about two and a half, three hour drive. So I went up there and then when I was done, um, he came back down here to visit with me and he said, I want you to be the youth pastor of our church. Well, that's interesting. Um, a two and a half hour commute on a good day. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, I said, well, I'm going to have to get back to you. And uh, we were going to say no, and God told both Heidi and I individually, uh, the answer is yes, and you're going to North Bay. And so we would load up the kids. They were about two at the time, and we had a couple Dobermans and a minivan, and we drove up to North Bay uh, for the commuted to church every weekend uh, up to North wow. Bay, slept on air mattresses in a trailer. And it was kind of funny. One night, I, you know, I hear these stories about people starting out in ministry and Oh, you know, I loaded up my station wagon and, you know, drove the family across the countryside and, you know, I was sleeping here and there. And, and so here I was in the middle of the night, Heidi and I were laying on an air mattress that was deflating as we were lying on it with nice. the two Dobermans, uh, you know, uh, lying on, we were sleeping on the floor of a trailer and I started laughing. I was like, uh, we've got a story, but this is awesome. I'm having so much fun. <laughs> so we loved it. Uh, but I was doing 40 plus hours. Uh, actually, probably a lot more than that with overtime and everything. I was doing uh, my regular career OBP work at the same time. Uh, so it was a bit of a juggle, but uh, it was good. Uh, and we did. And uh, then uh, when we kind of stopped that, I parked my family at uh, Bradford Community Church. And I was doing, I was a youth pastor at Flemington Park down in Toronto. So it was just too much to be hauling everybody all over the place and we needed to kind of stabilize. So I was going down there and doing youth services and then um, the odd Sunday. And then I would be here with my family 
And that went for two and a half years. And then once that finished, then uh, I was uh, considering actually leaving uh, the policing and going into uh, pastoring, sort of a youth pastor sort of thing. And just, uh, just nothing was right. It wasn't the right thing. It wasn't the right fit. It just, it just, we just knew it wasn't right. Uh, and uh, then we were asked to stay, we were asked to come on as the associate here in Bradford. And uh, so that was about a dozen years. And uh, we've uh, had uh, some pastoral changes here or uh, we're in transition. And uh, I've come on as the interim pastor here in Bradford. So uh, that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm having so much fun. The people are amazing. Um, we've got an amazing board here. Uh, and there's just some really, really cool and exciting things that are going on here. And uh, again, tent maker. Yeah. So. Well, uh, I want to I wanna ask you about a, a, a some some of the things that uh, that you're given the the lead on in uh, in Bradford in your in your community, um, you were telling me about um, something you were doing with uh, students, uh, like a student uh, hiring program, and and but then, but then also I want to hear about uh, the the trailer park uh, <laughs> that that you've started. And yes. uh, so tell us about those two things and anything else that's kind of. Um, you know, what, what, talk about the adventure of uh, being a, a church that, uh, that rubs shoulders with the community and actually gets involved. Uh, okay, don't let me forget about Apostle Paul. At the end, I want to tell you about him. Okay, okay. Apostle Paul. Yeah, okay. So uh, we had, uh, we received government funding uh, here for a number of years uh, to run a summer day camp. So it was a summer student job program from the federal government as a grant. And uh, we had these day camps here. Anyways, uh, when I took over in the spring, I worked really hard to try to find somebody that would, would do that. Uh, and I couldn't find anybody to take that over. So speaking with the board, we decided to kill the program. And got thinking about it and talking about it. Say, well, what about, what about this? What if we went back to the, the government and with a new program idea and we'll call it the summer of service. And basically uh, we had approval at the time for 14 summer students. And uh, so we went to the government and said, this is what we wanna do. We, we can't do the summer day camp, but we would like to get these, hire these kids. And we wanna cut them loose on the community, serving the community. And they went for it. We got approval. And these kids, we had, uh, well, we had 14 paid for by the government. We were paying one. Uh, and then we had a whole bunch of them that came that weren't being paid. Uh, and, you know, some people would use the term volunteer. I use the term servant because you can't find the word volunteer in the New Testament. Right. So uh, we call it the summer of service. The kids were involved in uh, helping the homeless. They uh, worked at the food bank. The clothing store, the clothing bank, uh, the out of the cold cafe, they were helping a ministry that deals with uh, human trafficking. They were going to seniors' homes and doing gardening and helping them with their house stuff. They did music at seniors' homes. They sang Oh Canada with the mayor at a seniors' home. Uh, they uh, did car washes, free car washes. One of the cool ones, one of our go-tos was uh, the local Starbucks. Uh, they would stand in the drive-thru and they would play music and sing and stand there with a garbage bag and take garbage out of people's cars. And they handed them little cards that they hand wrote messages. You know, uh, you were loved and you're special and have a great day. And handwritten cards. Wow. And the crazy thing was, is that a lot of the ideas were driven by and I worked through a lot of them, but uh, I wanted them to do, come up with their own ideas. And they came up with this idea to write up these little tiny cards, handwritten with encouraging messages on them. I thought, well, wow. Santa, whatever. Uh, you know, I, I didn't see the point. I was like, okay, whatever. Well, this is it. Like, this became huge. 
these cards were getting passed around. It was going on Facebook. Hey, I got one of these cards at Starbucks. It was amazing. And then, you know, weeks later, someone would come through as, oh, I got the one from the last time. I still got it. And they bought it in their car and they get another one. And uh, they would accept nothing. We would accept nothing. And uh, so the one, one time at Starbucks, I don't know how many times it happened, but this pay it forward thing happened. The kids refused to take anything. And so people were going up to the window to pay for theirs. They pay for theirs and pay for the one behind them. And it just kept going and going. And we had no idea. Uh, and the kids were singing and dancing. And oh, my goodness, it was like, it was crazy. They were cleaning up garbage in parks, Home Depot, wow. uh, helped out in restaurants, uh, cleaning up, opening for COVID because they were reopening. They did a kid's uh, play day here, a fun day. Uh, oh my goodness. Like the list goes on. Summer, Actually, the summer of service. Yeah. Summer of service. Yeah. And the funny so what, thing was, mm-hmm. sorry, the, the funny thing was this, this lady, um, uh, she lived in Newmarket and one of the kids made contact with her and she had some tenants or something that left a mess when they left and they, they she, she needed some help. And so, uh, the, one of the team leads who made this connection took her team down to work in this lady's yard. And so they did all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the, at the end of that project that day, this woman offered them fudgesicles. And they said, uh, she, they said, nope, we can't accept anything. And well, this woman got all up. Well, I have to give you something like, no, nope, we won't accept anything. <laughs> I just want to give you fudgesicles. Uh, nope, we're not allowed to accept it. She's, this woman starts praying in the middle of her home that God would make a way for her to be able to give these kids fudgesicles. So, <laughs> so the, the team lead gets me on the phone and says, Hey, uh, someone here needs to talk to you. And like, okay. And this lady, this, this senior elderly lady, she gets on the phone and says, you're pastor Corey. I said, yep. Well, I have a gifting. My giftings are in hospitality. Do you know what that is? And like, I think so. And well, I have a gift of hospitality and these kids have come here and done such amazing work. And uh, my gifting is in hospitality and I can't let them leave without giving them a fudgesicle. And they tell me they're not allowed to take a fudgesicle. Are you going to let an old lady give these kids fudgesicles or is this going to be a problem? (laughs) You can give them fudgesicles. I'm out, you know, and yep. so she's, she's been known all summer as the fudgesicle lady. Oh, that's so, brilliant. So she's kept in touch and the kids have gone there a few times and it's, you know, it's been, it's been kind of fun. And she, she's called me a couple of times and she sent a letter and uh, anyways, the kids so, are amazing. So what, uh, what did uh, you as uh, a pastor uh, and, and the church, what did that summer of service uh, teach you or tell you or reinforce in you? Well, if you look at the, what it meant to be a disciple to the first century Christians, that wasn't, uh, uh, just a student that wasn't a learner. A disciple was an imitator, a mimicker, a copier. So if you were a, a disciple of a master, you walked like that master, you dressed like them, you talked like them, you did what they did, you went where they went, you wore the same shoes, you acted the same way, you copied them and imitated them. Well, everything that Jesus did was to seek and save the lost and serve others. Yeah. Everything. Nothing, nothing, like everything fit into that. So it was like, you know what? We're out to serve you. We're out to share Jesus. This is what, and people would ask, what were you doing? Why are you doing this? Well, because this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus would do. We're here to serve our community. Uh, and like it, it's it, the mayor was calling and reaching out to us. Can you help with this? Uh, our provincial part, uh, our provincial, some of the leads went and met the, our provincial uh, government representative for our area. Uh, like it was, it was, it was huge. And it's caught like it, it's caught on to our church Um they're they're getting it, and now the crazy thing is that the sun is basically coming to an end. They've got a few hours they need to finish up for their commitment, but uh, these kids aren't stopping. Like when their hours are done, they are going to keep going. And and the crazy thing is, uh, uh, let's let's be real. Uh, in the, for the most part, 
what you and I grew up with as a youth service does not work anymore. It's changed. And these kids, uh, every day, they would, come, they would come in, they would do their own devotions, uh, they would pray, then they would go out and do their, their, their work, and they had so much fun together. So we've teamed up with another church in the area in Tottenham, and we're combining our groups. And every week, their youth program is they're going to go out and do a project in the community, serve the community. They're going to get together. They're going to do their own devotional time, and they're going to go and have some fun. And Corey, that would be uh, that would be fun to to get uh, some of those uh, 15, 14 and, and one paid uh, together on a Zoom call with you just to talk about summer of service. But because I bet you they got the best stories and I'm and I'm also thinking that, uh, you know, 10 years from now that there are seeds that were planted in that summer of service that are going to be um, uh, we're going to see the fruit of that you know, some of those things 10 years from now. So very, very good. I, we're, we're getting a little tight on time, but so I do want to hear about the trailer park and uh, oh, you got to tell me about park. that. Uh, this is crazy. We had a, a building fire in town back in it was March or April or something like that. And, and there's basically 80 some odd families that were put out. So imagine you're living in, you're living in an apartment the smoke detector goes off, fire alarm goes off, and you figure somebody's burned another piece of toast or something. So you just walk out the building and stand in the parking lot waiting for them to let you back in. Well, that didn't happen. They were not allowed back in the building. For three months, whatever they left the building with, they, that was all they had. So they didn't have their license. They didn't have their wallet. They didn't have their phone. They didn't it all. They couldn't go back and get it. So uh, they were basically out on the street. Well, we have a huge housing crisis, crisis uh, shortage of housing and affordable housing. It's a major issue uh, across the country, but uh, you know, here is we're no exception to that. So nowhere for these people to go. Uh, they had only what they had on their backs when they walked out. And if they could find something to rent, uh, an apartment to rent, you know, a lot of them were had been there for a long time, so they're paying eight hundred dollars a month for rent, whatever, you know, a lower amount. Well, to get that same thing now, you'd be paying a couple thousand. Uh, so no way to, no way to go about that. Anyways, uh, the Red Cross was involved for a little while uh, and some other groups. Uh, there was a ministry in town called Wow Living uh, that was also involved with the other, uh, the Cold Cafe. Anyways, I called, uh, when I heard about the fire, I called uh, a couple different places and said, we're here, we'll do what we can, let us know. And I didn't hear anything for about a month. And then all of a sudden, uh, this uh, uh, Wow Living contacted me, uh, Jody, who we've known for years. Uh, she called me and said, hey, would you guys entertain putting a trailer in your parking lot to house one of the families from the fire? And I said, absolutely. But I could do you one better. We have a portable that's sitting out there that's not being used, uh, a lot of storage and stuff in there. Uh, what if we rent out that and turn it into, a, you know, a small apartment for somebody. Well, that would be great. So we got together, we met, and the crazy thing is that our portable got completely renoed. Uh, new floor, new ceiling, new lighting, electrical, all the rest of it, and it cost the church that much. Wow. That's zero. You can see the background. I'm going to get right in the camera. It cost us nothing. The community came together, and they they did it. And then uh, we, we had another family that needed a place to go. And so we looked around and as you know, during COVID, you can't buy puppies, you can't buy uh, boats, bicycles uh, or trailers, RV trailers. Well, we came across a, a trailer, uh, a fifth wheel trailer and we bought it, the church bought it. And so we put it on the property and we have housing another uh, another couple in there. While living, purchased another fifth wheel trailer and put that on the property. So we've got somebody living in there now as well. Then uh, we installed, uh, we turned our janitor's closet into a shower in the church. 
And so we involve the church uh, people. There's shower times and come and sit here and be here when open the building for them so they can go in and uh, that happened. And so we had people coming here all the time doing that. And then while living raised $50,000, yes, five zero, $50,000 in three weeks to buy a portable double shower bathroom. Uh, wow. Trip. So uh, sink, toilet, and shower times two. Wow. In the one unit. And so we now have that parked on our property. Mm -hmm. uh, crazy, crazy thing is that we've got people coming from all over the community that are coming to use the shower out in our property. We have um, a lady and her, well, they're older, like uh, the mom, I don't even, she has, like it takes her 10 minutes to walk across the parking lot kind of thing. They're living in their car. Uh, they come and they have showers here. We have somebody living in the area that's living in a shack with no running water, no electricity. He comes here for showers. Hmm. Uh, we have uh, a tent city that is within spitting distance uh, from our church that we had no idea was there. We have them coming here. Hmm. And uh, it's just been absolutely amazing. And the crazy thing is that... Uh, we have our they have become part of our church family like we like we love them legitimately like and uh they're coming to church uh, a couple of them uh gave their hearts to jesus and got baptized uh in one of our services and it's just been amazing uh it's been amazing so I, wow. I, love, I love them. And so now we've got this other project where we're uh, with Wow Living, where we're turning a, uh, a park model trailer uh, into a all year round trailer uh, and for, for winterizing it. So that's another project. And eventually one of those families, um, they're going to be, that's going to be their home. What's really incredible is that you have community support behind this Uh the they're not uh you know chasing you down with zoning bylaws and and uh you know i i'm assuming they're not the the fact that uh they're feeding into it well the mayor was here uh had come and visited and you know i i one of the things that i do is i like to surround myself with people that are smarter than me uh and so I called the mayor whisperer, also known as Pastor Howard Courtney. Uh, probably many people know who <laughs> I know Howard. Yeah. I said, the mayor is coming here. This is what we're doing. Uh, help me. What do I say? How do I handle this? And he said, well, uh, I don't want to intrude, but if I can be there in about 20 minutes, if you like, like, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the, the mayor's been here now. Uh, they have basically told uh, while living that any permits that need to be uh, acquired to do what we're doing, they will. Uh, help us not only help us get them uh they will waive any fees uh that we would incur getting the permits and uh, it's crazy wow talk about having uh favor i mean that's that's a gift from god to have that kind of favor and yeah but and you it, know what it is but, I, you say that it is but you know what like i told you when we were talking about with me like how can i help you right. uh i thought i knew what bradford needed I yeah. didn't have a clue. Yeah. The moment I called him and said, how can we help you? The floodgates open. Like it's, 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 we have to, we have to get outside of our cozy little church gatherings and maybe also known as, a, you know, coming to church on Sunday for a spiritual bubble bath. Yeah. We've got to get out of that. Like we have to, we have to be Jesus, get out into the community, seek and save the lost and serve others. And it's amazing when you go out and ask, how can we help you? What does the town need? Where are the needs? Uh, it does not take long. And now I'm getting messages from the town. I've got Wow Living basically is now set up here uh, all the time. We'll have upwards of 30 people here during the day uh, in and out uh, serving the community. It's amazing. And it doesn't take much. Corey, we can learn a lot from guys like you and churches like yours that uh, have that servant helpful attitude towards the place that they live. Hey, we're, we're getting uh, down to the end, but um, got time for one more story. So uh, final story, uh, you got to tell us about the apostle Paul. Well, the neat thing, the neat thing about him 
um, we've all read his letters, most of us, uh, we've all read his letters. And uh, if we take a step back for a minute, uh, he was a tent maker. Mm-hmm. And whatever that meant, whether it was a, a prayer shawl kind of thing, or it was an actual physical tent that you slept in, whatever that was, the, the point, the point of the, uh, is that he, uh, he worked and that helped support what he did in ministry. And I think that's interesting because, uh, you know, I, to be honest with you, me personally, I hate this term uh, full-time ministry. Uh, it just, I, I don't understand that because as Christians, I think we're yeah. all, we're it, all there. It'd be like saying, well, I, I, I have a full-time marriage. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a full-time, uh, full-time son. Right. Yeah. So I look at that and I say, well, that's interesting. And then, you know, if you, you look at uh, Paul writes about his thorn in the flesh. Okay. Uh, what was that thorn in the flesh? And there's lots of speculation from people with lots of letters after the name and everything, but I'm going to give you mine. What I think if you read up to that point where he starts talking about his thorn in the flesh, he says, I was flogged. I was left for dead. I was stoned. I was imprisoned. I was this, I was that, uh, I was beaten. I was tortured. Uh, I was, you know, a shipwrecked. How many times, you know, all those things he goes through. And then he starts talking about this thorn in the flesh. Paul, apostle Paul, he had PTSD period. He suffered multiple, multiple traumas over and over again. And if you're looking in context, read the thing together. Don't read, don't read, uh, um, don't read. I have a thorn in the flesh on its own. Read what leads up to it. What's after it. And he says, he says like, you're, you're, uh, there was a book that was written called the body, your body keeps the score. And I've only read a little bit of it, but basically uh, even in that statement alone, what happens up in here shows up physically in your body. So me not being able to get out of Walmart, me not being able to speak because something triggers me and I can't talk. uh, That is PTSD related and it shows up physically. It shows up in, in what I can and can't do. And I have limitations. And I look at what he says, he goes through all that and he says, I have a thorn in the flesh. And then he says, well, I've asked God to take it away three times and he didn't. And we sometimes as, as Christians, we, you know, well, if you're not healed, you don't have enough faith or if you're not healed, you haven't said the prayer right, or you haven't done this. Like what a pile of crap that is. I mean, really Mm -hmm. uh, we believe in healing. Sure. But God in his sovereignty, sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he doesn't. But Paul turns around and says, you know what, even though I've got this thorn in the flesh, in my weakness, that is an opportunity for God to empower me to do amazing things. It keeps mm-hmm. it, it kept him humble, but it also like, okay, I can't do this on my own. I am going to allow God to empower me to go and do something amazing. So I look at my at my journey and, and what I'm where I'm going and where I'm coming, and I've got a long way to go. I'm not there yet. And uh, but I have this thorn in the flesh and whether God's going to take it away or not, it doesn't I mean that's whatever that's going to be. But you know what? I, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to do what he did. I want to seek and save the lost and I want to serve others because that's the example he set. So I'm not going to let some stupid PTSD slow me down from that. And uh, we're going to keep pressing forward. We're keeping with the laws and the rules as best as we can here. We're not breaking any rules. Uh, We're doing the best that we can, but that is no reason for us to slow down. And if you look at a time in history, in our history, in our lifetime, where people needed hope and they needed to see life and peace and hope and joy, well, giddy up, it's now. So put up or shut up, get out there and we've got to do something. And so here we are, come and visit anytime. I would love to have people come and see what's going on here. I'd love them to meet our new friends and family that are joined our church that are living in trailers on our property. Um, they're amazing people. I love what Corey Costera is doing in Bradford. And I also love the fact that that thing in his life that was uh, such a point of weakness uh, actually becomes uh, something that that shapes uh, his heart and uh, opens him up to to understand vulnerability in, in a lot of new ways. 
On our next episode of Sidewalk Skyline Podcast, um, I'm going to be talking with a, a longtime friend of mine and uh, a co-worker, Kevin Saunders. When I uh, first uh, began to plant New Song Church in Windsor 27 years ago, uh, it wasn't too long after I started that uh, Kevin Saunders became a part of our team. He had been involved in ministry in the city and uh, it was probably a couple of years in when, when he came and joined our team. And uh, then uh, he would later on go on to uh, minister in, in another church in Michigan, uh, a uh, church in our neighboring uh, bedroom community of LaSalle. And uh, then 14 years ago, planted a church called Lifeline Church. Um, <clears throat> recently, uh, after a couple of years of uh, talking about it with the leadership of uh, both of our churches, the decision was made that Lifeline Church would come into and be part of New Song Church. So we're, we're working together again. And uh, so Kevin and I are going to talk about uh, just some of the deep lessons that we've learned in urban ministry and uh, some of the experiences we've had over the years and, and how uh, following the mission of God into the city has actually had an effect on shaping who we are today. So I hope you'll come back on our next episode and listen to that. And until the next time that you can join us, I'm Kevin Rogers and you're listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.